Hi, this is Eric Scheffler, the Sheriff of Atlantic County. Each month on the Hope Exists podcast, I will discuss how we can create a healthier and safer community right here from the Boys and Girls Club of Atlantic City. Through my conversations with local and national experts, I believe we can all come away with a renewed sense of hope and actionable solutions to move us forward as a community. Please like, subscribe, and share. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Hope Exists Podcast. I'm here at the Boys and Girls Club in Atlantic City. My name is Eric Scheffler. I'm Atlantic County Sheriff. I'm really excited about today's topic. And today I have Victoria Johnson, who is a licensed social worker and works for the boys and girls club there themselves right yes yeah, so hello everyone my name is victoria johnson again i'm a licensed social worker and my capacity here at the boys and girls club of atlantic city teen center is the director of behavioral health services here great so i'm so happy to have you here with us today thank you and i have jamie tell us a little bit about yourself as well sure jamie angelini I'm a longtime mental health advocate and educator. I've been with the Mental Health Association in New Jersey for the last 20 years, working as a mental health educator, partnering with organizations like the Boys and Girls Club. So really happy to be here today. Uh, we're really excited about it. And I have two co-hosts today, which I do, usually do not have. I have Jeremiah. Jeremiah, introduce yourself. Hello, I'm Jeremiah. Uh, I'm 13 and I'm from Atlantic City, New Jersey. I'm looking forward to all your insights today, and I have Jonah with me as well. Hello, I'm Jonah. I've been going to the Boys and Girls Club for about two years now. I'm from Atlantic City, New Jersey. Glad to have you here, too. So I'm excited about having uh, all of you on with us today. And this topic, again, is you know mental health for teens, for youth, what's going on, some of the things that you're actually doing to change our communities, to make them healthier, to make them safer, and how these things can affect you know kids in the immediate and long term. And, and I was saying before that you know mental health wellness is so important to our society and to our country. And and w- what I truly believe that it, unless we affect people at a much younger age, we're never changing the future. We're not addressing domestic violence. We're not addressing gun violence. We're not addressing all these other different issues that we know occur in a long-term holistic way, right? I'm not saying that we're not trying to affect change in the immediate, but in in order to really affect long-term change, we have to address ACEs. We have to address what people do at that time in their lives. Again, a kindergarten kid is not going to be able to recognize mental health in themselves, but that doesn't mean their teachers couldn't. That doesn't mean their parents couldn't. Now, just being able to recognize mental health, honestly, is not enough, right? How do I communicate to that individual about mental health, no matter what age? How do I communicate to their parents And if I am able to communicate to them, how do I access services beyond my own ability to be able to support people, not just in the immediate, but in the long term, right? Because this is long-term care that we're talking about. And I know a lot of people hate that. A lot of people hate hearing that someone's going to need long-term support. What I say is we all need long-term support. Every person sitting at this table, everyone in this room, everyone in this building has had long-term support their entire lives. But fortunately or unfortunately for our society, we tend to stigmatize long-term support depending on what we think is right or wrong, right? 
you know, I'm not the sheriff of Atlanta County because of Eric Schaffler. I'm the sheriff because of long-term support in my life. And I'm going to continue to have it. And guess what? I'm going to have a lot more probably as I get older. But when it comes to like treatment and recovery and support to certain things that we like to stigmatize, which mental health is absolutely one of them, when we talk about long-term support, we people like to say, oh, well, can't we just you know give them a pill or fix them or, or, and let them go on their way and, and then they could take care of themselves? Well, who takes care of themselves? Nobody. Absolutely nobody. So why can't that be an acceptable thing that we talk about? But we're also going to have to be able to train individuals in order to be able to move forward with that, those support systems that are out there already. Um, and I know that both of you, Victoria and Jamie, have been doing a lot of work in the youth field. I just want to get your thought process on the stigma, of course, but then we can absolutely talk more about some of the things that you're able to do and, and where we're going. So, Victoria, tell me a little bit about what you think. Yeah, I definitely think that stigma can be a barrier uh, when it comes to mental health, especially in, in in some marginalized you know communities. So for me, as the director of behavioral health services here at the teen center, it's important that I'm working towards decreasing that stigma. And the way that I believe we decrease stigma is being informed so that we can empower. I'm really big on creating safe spaces for individuals to be able to communicate their experiences. That's non-judgmental. That really focuses on where you are and where you've been and where you're going. So for me, decreasing stigma really starts with being informed, really starts with creating a safe space for individuals to be able to just communicate and just be themselves. I think it's a hurdle, but I think that, again, having the information, accurate information, can definitely work to decrease the myths, to empower people to focus on their mental health just as much as they focus on their physical health. Physical health at times is at the forefront, but mental health is just as important as physical health. And, and it's interesting because you were talking about marginalized communities. We know that mental health affects everyone, no matter where you live, who you are, what planet you're from, right? But the reality of it is it just seems sometimes in some of these uh, economically depressed areas, there's a little bit more stigma when it comes to reaching out for health. In maybe some of the other economically better off communities, it, there's less stigma about actually reaching out for that health. Not that there is not stigma against mental health itself, because we know that's a whole nother line of a stigma that occurs even in coworkers and, and, and children and, and teens and everyone else. But it just seems like the community itself is almost stigmatizes that you're getting help. It's almost like a weakness or, or a sickness that you can't get better from. Do you see that at all? Or? Or I think sometimes there's access to resources. Depending on community, community can have a lot more access to resources and can be more informed, and that could help that community decrease the stigma. But in some communities where access is limited, that is possible where there is stigma. Also, depending on different cultural factors, people feeling like they can ask for help. I think sometimes asking for help can be difficult for whatever reason. So... I think big factors when it comes to stigma is do communities have access to resources and do they feel comfortable with the individuals, agencies, organizations who are actually providing those services? Are those services culturally competent? Are we paying attention to the communities who actually need the resources and making sure that they have them? So again, for me, 
bring in behavioral health services to the Boys and Girls Club Teen Center, which has never been done before. That's why it's so near and dear to me to be able to be here where our kids come to for recreation and workforce development and really be able to service them their social, emotional health and well-being. That's how we're decreasing that stigma right here in our community. Well, that's great. That's fantastic. It's interesting that you were saying that, you know, and I know that this is not only new to this Boys and Girls Club, but it's it's actually new across the country about actually accessing community centers with individuals with the ability to be able to address those issues. So the very exciting work that you're doing. Jamie, what do you think about the stigma and how it's going? I couldn't agree more with the idea of education being informed. You know, when we talk about mental health, and you said it, you know, mental health is health, but yet we look at them so differently. And the idea that one in five of any of us, I mean, look at us, we're in a small space, one in five of us will experience a mental health challenge in our lifetime. Why aren't we talking about it more? You know, we've, we've made a lot of headway, but we have so much work to do. And having those open conversations, and a piece of that is just normalizing it, making it typical in households with young children to talk about mental health the way we talk about physical health. You know, if cancer runs in your family, we talk about that early. We talk about early screenings, but when, you know, in our family, and I'll speak for my own, mental illness and addiction run in our family. I have those conversations with my children because it's important. So I think a piece of it is that being informed, like you said, and having conversations where you can ask those questions in that safe space is so important. So uh, yeah, stigma is out there. We have a lot of work to do, but advocacy is, is working hard. We are, and just educating people in our community is something that's so important to reduce that stigma. Yeah, Jeremiah, what do you think about having access to being able to talk about what's emotionally or, or psychologically affecting you during a, a day here? I, I'm sure you're seeing in school too that when people talk, have you heard the word resiliency in school? Yes. And, and so when, when they talk about resiliency and they talk on part of resiliency, of course, is the ability to understand or recognize that sometimes you may need help, right? Yes. So, so and, and that's kind of what we're talking about here, too, is, is our ability to be able to recognize it in ourselves or our friends and then be able to communicate that to someone that we, we trust or, or someone that we know that trusts someone that can be able to help us work through that that problem or that issue. And now you have access to that here in the Boys and Girls Club. That's pretty interesting, right? Yes. Uh, Jonah, what do you think? What is stigma? So stigma, that's a good question. I should probably look it up before I answer it on air. Stigma is something that when we look at at a situation that we bring a negative thought process to it without really having any base in, in truth. Does that make sense? Did I confuse you? <laughs> yeah, it confuses me. I'm sorry. So a lot of times the stigma with mental illness, people believe that someone experiencing a mental illness or a mental health challenge means they're weak or something's wrong with them, or people use the C word, crazy, when in fact we know that's not true because any one of us can be impacted with a mental health challenge. And really, people that are moving through that and managing it are really strong. They're survivors. Um, but there is this feeling out there, this idea that there's something wrong with you. And that's what we're working to reduce and to break so that if someone's experiencing a mental health challenge, they'll be more likely to just ask for help. Um, they won't be afraid that people will think of them differently. And, and stigma actually affects not only people outside of the person, but the person themselves. 
because if I think negatively about something that I'm going through, I may not ask for help because I think someone's going to also think poorly about me. Does that make sense? A little bit? Yes. So it's kind of, kind of, Victoria, you want to jump in? Yeah, I, I think that you, you both spoke to it. But when I think of stigma, I think of, again, negative views towards something, right? So if I'm not feeling emotionally well, I may not tell someone because the stigma or that negative view behind that, again, may mean that I'm weak or something is wrong with me. And, and so I try to reframe that with what happened to you because nothing is wrong with us. We go through experiences, our own individual experiences that have an impact on our daily functioning. And when I say daily functioning, I think of how we interact at home, how we interact at school, and how we interact within the community. So stigma is really those negative views that we have. And sometimes, again, that could, in turn, we may not ask for help because of that. Does that help you, Jonah? Yes. So, Victoria, you said something super powerful. You know, what happened to you? Because the stigma of mental health, and, and as we know, it reaches all across all barriers. And, and, you know, I'm a career law enforcement person. I'm coming up to about 28 years. And I would see the stigma of mental health and reaching out for help was tremendous. Now, we had access. That wasn't our issue. We had great health benefits, access to all kinds of different uh, providers. They all wanted to work with us. But the stigma was so strong, not only outside of the individual, but within that individual, that it, it was almost impossible to reach out. Um, our suicide rate is still not good in law enforcement. You know, we lose uh, officers every day in this country both that are working and, and retired because they don't understand their ability to reach out and to get help and they believe something is wrong with them. But we absolutely know that's not true. So when you said that, you know, it gave me chills because I think a lot of both of your work is about training other people to understand how to communicate with these individuals so they feel comfortable, so they understand that there's nothing wrong with them that this is normal, especially when you go through critical events, traumatic events, you know, some kind of trauma of some type. It's almost not normal to feel those ways, right? And, and we talked about COVID uh, before. Um, we could talk about it today as well. But COVID, a lot of people have uh, equated COVID to almost like suffering from cancer, like the unknown of a daily what's going to happen to you that constant unknown really wears on us as human beings. And it's long term, right? It's, you know, it's occupational stress that continues to build for a long period of time and doesn't ever have an end. That's, that's really hard to deal with. We know that teens have, have suffered from that during the last couple of years. Adults have suffered from it during the last couple of years. Unfortunately, you know, a lot of people in recovery have relapsed, and a lot of people in active addiction have uh, unfortunately also ended in a tragic way. So let's talk a little bit about that. Let's talk about creating access and training to individuals that touch our our children, our teens, and are able to be that first line of connection to the next level of care. 
So what do you think, Jamie? Who are these people, by the way? So one of the wonderful trainings that Victoria and I both do is called Youth Mental Health First Aid and Teen Mental Health First Aid. I know uh, Victoria is going to talk a little bit about that, too. But that is a program. It's a public education program. And I know uh, you've taken it. It's a wonderful way to work with people in our community who may have no knowledge before of mental health or mental illness, to teach them signs and symptoms in young people, to be able to respond, to ask those questions, to have open conversations. It's a program that's based in evidence, and the evidence shows that it reduces stigma. It shows there is an increase in mental health literacy after people take it. And it's designed for everyone, but we really love bringing it to communities and to schools and to law enforcement. As a parent, I always say I want every person who interacts with my kid throughout the day to have this course. Everyone from their bus driver early in the morning, basketball coach late at night, everyone in between. Because then they will have the knowledge if something is happening early that maybe I miss. They may have a different relationship. They might be that trusted adult to say to my child or another child, hey, I've noticed, is something going on? And those are some of the really simple skills that we teach in youth mental health first aid. Yeah, I definitely think that youth mental health first aid, when I think of community support, I think that this is a great training for our community. Right, because we know that informal people in our lives are the ones that, that help us, right? Our, they're our village, per se. And if our village is trained in this evidence-based model, we're able to acknowledge the signs and symptoms of a mental health challenge and be able to support that young person. So definitely agree. Yeah, I do too. I mean, as Jamie said, I have taken it myself. And I've done a lot of different mental health training throughout my career. And and I was one of the first FBI National Academy resiliency trainers in the state of New Jersey. And I helped bring uh, our resiliency training to first responders over the last couple of years. And, And the attorney general two years ago made it mandatory. And I think it's so valuable, this training and this education, and everyone should have it. But everything that we learn has a life skill time on it, right? So they're perishable. And regardless of how impactful that training may have been a year ago, two years ago, I had access to it. Eventually, if I don't use it, or even if I do, a lot of it, as soon as I'm done, is going away, right? We know, I mean, if you look at some of the studies, you know, people retain 50% of what they learn after a certain period of time, and then you know, that goes down to 20% and then 10% and sometimes it's five or less percent, right? Shouldn't we, if we were giving this training, we're doing all this time and this energy and effort to, to train everyone from school teachers to bus drivers to, to clergy to doctors to, to whomever, shouldn't we have some type of basic skill set that is like a refresher program or course on a regular basis based on scientific evidence that we know that retention is is based around? What do you think about that, Victoria? Yeah, I definitely do. And I think those opportunities are out there as far as organizations and agencies really just kind of taking, you know, the bull by the horn in the sense of just ensuring that these refreshers are part of yearly training. I know that's something that I'm attempting to bring here at the club in regards to our staff, just increasing our training and making yearly training so that this isn't just something that you, you set in a train, a five-hour training, and then it was, it was gone, per se. But mental health trainings really should be incorporated into yearly trainings as refreshers. 
Yeah, I agree 100%. I mean, you know, you think about this a lot, especially, you know, our, so our kids spend most of their time in school from the ages of 6 to 18. Why aren't we training them this on an annual basis of understanding not only their own mental health and wellness along with physical health, but how to, how to communicate it and how to access it? Because if, if we do that, then we change it long term. What do you think, Jamie? So, and one of the things about youth mental health first aid is that if you're interacting with a young person, you will continue to use those skills. You know, a lot of us get trained in CPR and medical first aid. We may never use those. We may never meet someone having a heart attack and have to use those skills. But if we're trained in youth mental health first aid, the chances are within a week of taking the training, you will encounter a young person who may be in emotional distress, who may be just showing some early signs and you'll be able to use those skills to say, hey, I've noticed, I'm concerned, how can I help? So we do feel that people will utilize those skills ongoing, but they have to take that on. They have to be champions in their own schools and their communities to say, this is something that's so important to me and I wanna now look out for the other young people in my life um, and notice. And not only notice, but have the courage to ask some questions and then be the bridge and connect a young person to more appropriate help if that's what they need. Um, So we do find that people utilize the skills if they truly want to do that. And we leave them armed with that after the training. And especially if you're a parent, right? If you're a parent, you're interacting with your children all the time and you get to use a lot of these skill sets. I'm actually, I have five girls and one boy. And honestly, not that I was trying to play like a trick on my children, but I truly found that some of the skill sets that I learned how to communicate to them when I thought they were in crisis really changed not the interaction of that time. You know, I remember one of the things that I, and I still use it because it's allowed me to bridge different difficult times with different ones of my children. But when I see someone in crisis or, or one of the things I, I say now is that anyone going through what you're going through would feel this way. What can I do to help? And it's such a, it's much more of a comforting way to communicate that you're there instead of saying, what's going on? You know, what's wrong? Like you were saying before. And it's amazing how language changes our interaction. Now, I mean, I, we, of course, language changes our interaction because we can make each other happy right now by saying certain things and we can infuriate each other with language. But we don't think about it when we're trying to communicate to someone who is having a, you know, some type of crisis, right? I know, Victoria, you were going to say something. Yeah, I just wanted to, to piggyback off of Jamie and saying that I also think a big important part of youth mental health first aid and teen mental health first aid is that you're taking this training not to diagnose people. You're really paying attention to signs and symptoms and change in behavior. So, yes, these are skills that you'll be able to utilize daily just in your engagement and interaction with young people. Just the change in behavior and just being able to acknowledge and notice that I think is a big piece of awareness that the training brings. Jeremiah, what do you think about your ability to be able to communicate sometimes what's going on, but having the specific language to be able to communicate your thoughts and feelings toward another person? You can pull that mic toward you. I think that it's very important that children my age and like all ages around from anywhere, any place, it doesn't matter like where you're from, that if you're having problems within yourself or like like at home problems, you could come like you should go and talk to somebody about it, like a professional, like a counselor or even the police maybe. But anybody that has professional training that can help you talk about it 
you like you shouldn't just keep it bottled up in inside yourself you should like express how you feel so you could get it out you know one of the interesting things and i'm talking to both you jeremiah and jonah is that sometimes when you have a an important decision to make and it's really weighing on you because it's a really hard decision and it, it's starting to bother you a little bit if you're communicating that with someone you trust a lot of times they've already made that decision and that decision to help you work through that is a lot easier and like a lot of times you feel like you carry I don't know if, if the two of you have experienced this yet in your life but sometimes when you get have to make decisions you feel like the weight of the world is on you do you ever feel that way Jonah sometimes it's hard sometimes to make those decisions right because it's they're heavy and they're they're hard but a lot of times if you can be able to communicate with someone like Miss Victoria and Miss Jamie a lot of times they're able to see that in a different way and in all of a sudden you're like, wow, that decision was wasn't as hard to make. Does that make sense to the two of you? Yes. yes. That's kind of like some of the things that we were talking about. I know one of the things that both of you are very interested in and have worked a lot is is uh, suicide awareness. And and this stigma that has been in suicide awareness for a long, long time. You know, I, I've also trained in some of these areas, of course, not to the extent of either one of you, but one of the stigmas is that if you communicate with someone and you ask them, do you feel suicidal, that you will drive them to be suicidal. And that's absolutely not true. In fact, what science and statistics have proven or shown that that question will a lot of times halt people or stop them to make them think about it. And why I say that is because a lot of times, and I've saw all that in my, you know, my lifelong career as a law enforcement officer with other officers and even with family members, people are afraid to ask a friend or a family member, are you really feeling this way? Because if you give me that answer, I have no idea what to do with it. And if you give me that, if I ask you that, did I drive you to it? Which both, both of those things are, are not true. One of the things that I know that both of you do a lot of training around is not only how to communicate with people, but how to access a higher level of service, because we're not clinicians. We're not there to treat you in any way, shape, or form. We're here to be able to support you to the next level of care. So what do you think about that stigma around that, that suicide question? So I think it's one of the number one myths out there that if we ask someone about suicide, we will give them the idea. The research tells us, like you said, it doesn't work that way. Someone's either thinking about suicide or they're not. By us asking, it lowers their anxiety. It acts as a deterrent. We know that. And it allows the person to know, wow, someone else sees the emotional pain I'm in. So one of the things in, in youth mental health first aid is we coach people and we allow them to practice asking the question about suicide directly. And a lot of times it's the first time someone's ever asked that question. And we teach them to ask it directly, to say to someone, even a young person, are you thinking about suicide? Are you thinking about killing yourself? And we allow people the space to practice that and to know that it's okay. And we don't have to be professionals to do that. You know, community gatekeepers can notice warning signs and ask someone and save a life. And that's a big piece of what we talk about in the course. Yeah, I think you were so accurate in the description of being seen, right? Yes, asking someone, are they suicidal or are they thinking about killing themselves is 
a good thing. You're not putting that into someone else's mind. They're actually, like Jamie said, you're really reducing the anxiety. And now they actually feel seen like, wow, I've been feeling this. Someone has actually now asked me directly. And so, yes, the, the youth mental health first aid training you do, you will practice saying those words. And it can be very uncomfortable. But it's so important that we're saying that because that's how you save a life. That's how you create a space. You're opening up a space for that young person to say, finally, I really want to talk about it. And yes or no. And I think that's the next step in getting the appropriate help. And and I just want to respond to one of the other things you said is we don't have to take this on alone. So if someone asks the question, we also teach them to then get connected to services. And we really make that clear that you're not taking this on alone just because you're the one who noticed and you may have had hopefully the courage to ask. Well, now what? And we leave people knowing there are other resources. There are ways to connect someone and we teach them how to do that. And, and you said an interesting term, which was courage. It does take courage to go out there and put yourself out for another human being and then take on some of what they're going through. But isn't that what we're supposed to do as human beings, really? You know, I mean, aren't we really here to help each other? I mean, there's a lot of reasons why a lot of people think we're here, but I mean, I believe that's why I exist. If I'm not here to help you, because if I help you, you can help someone else and someone else can help me, because that's how we survive. And we go back to lifelong support, right? We're not isolated people. We don't work well by ourselves. This is completely off topic, but think about solitary confinement for prisoners of war. And they didn't do that because I put you in a room by yourself that you were comfortable. That was torture. That was torture. If you're by yourself, if you're isolated, even in a room full of people that love you because no one has the courage or doesn't recognize that you need a different type of connection. And that's so important, right? That's so important for people that suffer from mental health, that suffer from active addiction, that need that connection and that support changes everything, right? And, and we know that in, in the uh, recovery community that the more isolated you are, the more vulnerable you are to relapsing. And again, I'm not talking about solitary confinement. I'm talking about isolated with, in a room full of people that love you because we don't recognize it. We don't have the courage to, to make that step. And a lot of times that has to do direct correlation to education and training, which both of you do. What do you, what do you think, Jonah, about you know, being alone and, and, and not having the support to help another person or yourself? Do you find that when someone in your family or a friend or an adult that, that you trust help you, it makes life easier? Yes. For me, it does, but I don't know how the outcome of the other person feels. Well, that's true. That's true. Well, we have people in the room that have done it for, as a living. We could ask them. I don't know how. I don't know how I should ask them. Uh-huh. Well, we could just say, you know, Miss Victoria, how do you feel when you help another person that you, know, you recognize that, that may be suffering or needs help? Yeah, I think this is why I do it. <laughs> You know, I chose this profession of social work to really give back to my community. That's also sometimes a misconception. I don't want to put my burden on another person. There's people out there that want to help. 
you just have to be able to be comfortable and have the courage. I think the courage goes both ways is, is asking for help, which I spoke on earlier because it can be very difficult. But this fight is, is all of ours and that, you know, I may not have all the answers, but I may be able to refer you and advocate for you to get services somewhere else. And I think that's the most important piece is that we don't all have to take on that burden alone. We can share that burden. And I also want to touch on what you said about isolation. I have a good friend, Neil, who's also a mental health first aid trainer and is listening to the podcast today. And um, he always says, we do not heal in isolation. We heal in community. And whenever he says that when we're training, it just sticks with me um, and really reminded me when you talked about that, that, you know, every one of us needs someone else to maybe recognize hey, I'm not doing so well. And it doesn't mean that a young person or anyone is in a crisis. They may just have some early developing challenges. And if we could intervene early, that's what this is about. You know, early intervention so we can move people towards recovery faster because we all know recovery is possible and probable. But if we don't notice something's going on and offer that support, we might miss it. And then we know that there's secondary effects and we want to, you know, we want to make sure that we reduce those as much as we can in communities. And there's no doubt that, especially with mental health, and that leads to so many other different types of behavior that are negative for us, that it builds upon itself, right? The longer we allow it to build and fester and, you know, negative thinking of ourselves and moving forward, it continues can build and it can turn into all kinds of different things. And then it sometimes it becomes harder to not only communicate, but maybe even to get back from. You know, intervention and connection is so important. I mean, that's why, you know, the old saying, you know, there's a lot of great old sayings out there, but one of the, one of them is takes a village to, to raise a child. Well, that's true. <laughs> that's 100% true. Um, they didn't say a mother. They didn't say a father. They didn't say a family. They said a village. And they said it for a reason, because it takes all of us to be able to do our part in everyone's lives, especially our children's lives, to change our communities. Right. And that's why, you know, when we talk about Hope Exists and we talk about this podcast is that's why it is based upon creating a healthier community, because healthier communities absolutely create safer communities. And and that's really the drive uh, that where we're going. So why don't we talk a little bit about what you're actively doing, how people can access what you're doing? Because that's important because we want people not only to be able to listen to us, but how do I get involved? How do I access this training, this this information? How do I bring it to my community? And that's something that's truly important to us. So, um, Victoria, how, how do people access you and, and the training that you're giving and, and be able to move forward? Sure. So I'll first talk about it. I brought Teen Mental Health First Aid to the Boys and Girls Club of Atlantic City Teen Center. Um, This is a partnership with Youth Training and Development Systems, another community partner, and we are co-facilitating Teen Mental Health First Aid. Teen Mental Health First Aid is specific for our 15 to 18-year-old teens, and it gives them the skills to identify signs and symptoms of an early mental health challenge. And it also gives them resources and the courage, I like that word, Jamie, to get a trusted adult involved. So we're not asking our teens to, again, take on the, the, the burden, but we're just saying, hey, these are some of the signs and symptoms of what a mental health challenge can look like. And we're going to give you the resources to be able to find a trusted adult to get, the, to get involved. 
And so the curriculum is six sessions. Um, We're actually going to do our second session this Friday. And I'm really excited to bring this again here to my community to inform our young people. Because for me, being informed is being empowered. And so to be able to bring team mental health first aid right here to the Boys and Girls Club of Atlantic City is means everything to me because now I know that I'll have team at the whole first aiders is what I call them in our building. So not only are they looking out for themselves, but they're looking out for the other teens that are in this building. My contact info is V Johnson at acbgc.org. Um, and please go on our website, acbgc.org backslash wellness So the teen mental health first aid is super exciting for the young people. Um, You've also heard us talk about the youth mental health first aid. So if individuals who are listening today are interested in that, they can reach out to the Mental Health Association. I'll leave my contact info at the end. But the youth mental health first aid is designed for adults who support young people. And really looking at, like we said, recognizing early signs and symptoms and taking that public education course. Um, And it's about eight hours. It's one day of your life. And it's so worth it to be able to recognize those early signs and be able to, like we've talked about, ask someone, you know, ask a young person, hey, can I help? What can I do? And become that, you know, community mental health advocate. You know, without working for an organization, you can just do that job in your community. One of the other exciting partnerships that Victoria and I are working on is suicide prevention um, for youth serving organizations. So the Mental Health Association has a grant to provide suicide prevention training to staff um, and parents and community members who are connected with youth serving organizations like the Boys and Girls Club. So that's something else that we're going to be doing in April um, and really then just enhancing those skills. So bringing together teen, youth mental health first aid and some suicide prevention training so that everyone here is is armed and everyone in our community with some of that information. Um, And if people want to find out more about that, they can just reach out to me directly at jangelini at mhan j.org or find us at the mental health association in new jersey to learn more thank you so much ladies what a pleasure it's been to talk about some of these really important issues today and um to get your insights amazing i learned a bunch of things today and i'm glad that you you were here with me and as well as joan and, and uh, jeremiah so I, I always like to talk about something a little bit more lighthearted at the end and one of my favorite uh, topics is food so what I would ask uh, Victoria first, because I know you have somewhere to go. Tell me uh, about your comfort food. What what do you what's your go to? What do you like to cook? You know any you know is there a special place you like to go eat in in the area? Hmm. My my comfort food is is macaroni and cheese. That's mm. my comfort food. That's my favorite. Um, but in the area, I would say it, it really depends on my mood. Um, but I, I love Socorro. I love Socorro. Um, you can't get macaroni always, and cheese there. I can't, but, you know, again, depending on the mood. But my comfort food is definitely mac and cheese. Do you make your own mac and cheese? I do. Do you have, like, a family recipe? Yes, it's my mother's, uh, and it's the best. Uh, we'll have to try to <laughs> get that. My wife makes an incredible macaroni and cheese. It's actually from one of her sister's. And it's magnificent. It really is. It's a, definitely a comfort food for me as well. Yeah, it's my favorite. Yeah. Yeah. 
Jamie, how about you? So I'm Italian and Greek, and I love both of those cuisines. Um, but I will say I'm going to go with Angelo's in Atlantic City for great Italian food. That's kind of our go-to all yeah. the time for dinners. Well, yeah. what, what do you get? What's your favorite dish? What's the go-to dish? I love the lasagna. I'm going to uh, go really simple, but it's the best. Um, yeah. yeah, so that's one of our you know one of our spots. All right, lasagna. Lasagna is good. That lasagna is definitely a comfort food. If you can get a right lasagna, there's there's not a lot of things better. That's a pretty good thing. How about you, Jonah? What's your favorite food that you like? What's your comfort food? For me personally, I like Spanish food. Okay. Like tacos, burritos, nachos, fajitas, stuff like that. Do you make any food yourself? Only tacos you and make- sometimes burritos. I love burritos. What do you put in your burrito? Just normal stuff. Beef, cheese, lettuce, and sour cream. Mm. I'm not a tomato person. No, no. Well, good burritos hard to beat. Do you just wrap it and and do you cook like grill the outside at all or you just No, I just wrap it. Yeah. I'm hung- hungry just listening to you. <laughs> How about you Jeremiah? What's your uh, comfort food? Well, for me, my comfort food is I would say macaroni and cheese. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Is is that something that you get somewhere or is it something that you, you know your your family makes? My family makes it, and it's, like, so good. Yeah. It's a family recipe. It's going on for three generations. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's, like, it's like really good. We might have to have a macaroni and cheese bake-off here. Yeah. Right. Get Chef Pam involved, and, <laughs> and everyone's going to have to do their own family recipe. We'll have to try it. Well, thank you all again. I really appreciate it. I think we've done some, you know, good work today and got some good information out to our listeners um if for any reason that you aren't able to get a hold of anyone on the show uh about connecting with uh, teen mental health wellness please uh, get a hold of us at hope exist and uh or the Atlanta county sheriff's office 609-909-7200 and ask for jamie costello and we will absolutely connect you thank you all 